Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, you guys! <laughs> it's uh, this year, 2016, is the 100-year anniversary of the United States National Park Service. We would know that even if we didn't know that, which we did, uh, because lots of listeners have written to tell us this. So many. So many. We have had so many requests for an episode about the Park Service. It is not even funny. It's astonishing, uh, the number to me. Like, so, I, Annette, like the first is, one we got, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then when we got about 15 more, I was like, whoa, people, what? Really? And then it got real landslidey, which is great. I mean, I'm glad that people love the Park Service and want to support it by hearing more about it. Uh, and I initially started out with the foolishly ambitious goal of putting together an episode tracing the origins of the National Park Service from its very beginnings of conservation mentality in the United States to the eventual establishment of the agency. Uh, which is it, what some people have asked us to do, basically. Yeah. And I applaud yeah. you for wanting that information, but... <laughs> But it quickly became apparent that to do that, we were basically going to have to rattle off a list of dates and events with no time to talk about or contextualize any of them. That's because the National Park Service is the culmination of a lot of different moments. Like, I had literally started writing the episode outline out. And, like, for example, to our listeners, our episode outlines usually run, I don't know, anywhere between... 2,500 and 3,200 words. 3,200 sure. would be a very long one. This mm-hmm. one, I had just the bullet points of the things to hit, and I was at 1,700 words. Yep. <laughs> like, there wasn't even verbs in those. It was literally like, this person, Yosemite, this person, he, it's, there was no way. So, um. This would after- be how, like, if we had a <laughs> lot more resources than we actually have, we would have just made an inter- interactive timeline on our website <laughs> and been like, yes. have at. Although that would be redundant because those do exist in other places. Um, so I uh, kind of set aside a chunk of that work that I had done already because it just became apparent that to really honor the National Park Service centennial, it might actually be, be better to focus on smaller and more specific elements of that greater whole. Uh, so in the event that you are disappointed and you're just dying to hear the full lengthy story, documentary, documentarian Ken Burns has you covered. Uh, in 2009, he worked on a documentary series about the National Park Service titled The National Parks. America's Best Idea, and it is available on Blu-ray and DVD. And the runtime on that set is listed as 720 minutes. That's 12 hours, which even if you factor in the fact that some of that is bonus content and credit sequences, that might give you an idea of why we're doing just one topic within the story of America's National Parks. So today, uh, we're going to have the first of a two-parter. We're going to talk about Yosemite in particular for both of these and one of the men who really spent a lot of his life there. So we're going to talk just about the park a little bit for context and what it is in case I'm sure we have listeners that are not from the U.S. or even if you're in the U.S., you might not know a lot of details about Yosemite. And then we're going to talk about a man named James Hutchings. If you're not familiar with Yosemite and where it sits geographically, it runs along the central eastern side of California adjacent to Nevada. It's 200 miles southeast of San Francisco in the the Sierra Nevada mountains. In terms of footprint, the park is 1,169 square miles. That's 700 
and 48,000 acres, with more than 800 miles or a little more than 1,200 kilometers of hiking trails, 214 miles or 344 kilometers of paved roads, and 20 miles, which is about 32 kilometers of paved walkways and bicycle paths. About 4 million people visit the park every year, and more than 94% of the park is undeveloped. So it's basically designated wilderness, and really, that's the draw. In a 2009 visitor study, 93% of respondents said that their primary activity on the visit was viewing the scenery. But while tourists make up most of the humans in the park today, archaeological evidence suggests that people were living in the area as far back as 8,000 years ago. In terms of traceable Native American tribes, the Awanichi, which is sort of a, if I'm understanding correctly from my research, kind of a blanket name given to almost all of the tribes that lived in the area, uh, have lived in Yosemite for 4,000 years that we have actual evidence of. And for a long time, those were the only people that were seeing the beautiful landscapes that now draw those millions of tourists. And today, there are seven tribes that can trace their lineage back to those earliest groups for whom Yosemite was home. In the early 1800s, a few trappers made their way into the area. Uh, but just before the midpoint of the 19th century, the promise of gold brought in a huge influx of people, and conflicts between miners and Native Americans in the region really began. In March of 1851, the Mariposa Battalion's Yosemite Expedition, consisting of 105 men spread across companies B and C, made its way into the Yosemite Valley under the command of Major James D. Savage. They were there to apprehend Awanichi as part of the Mariposa Indian War. That war was a conflict between native tribes and miners who had moved into the area. Most of the men in the battalion had been those miners. In early 1851, a trading post on the Fresno River was raided by a group of Native American clans who had banded together. These tribes were hoping that in drawing the white military into the mountains, the battalion would become lost and unable to pursue them any further. Keep in mind, at this point, California had not been a state very long. It joined the Union in September of 1850. And also in 1850, a piece of legislation titled, quote, an act for the government and protection of Indians was also signed into law. And that legislation made provisions for indenturing Native American children and adults to white settlers. There has been some theorizing among historians that James Savage had been so eager to assemble a battalion to go after the natives because he wanted to use the provisions in that act to capture Native Americans for use as a labor force. The arrival of the battalion in the valley is cited as the first time white men saw Yosemite. The tales that the soldiers later told of the amazing Yosemite landscape, including a waterfall reported to be a thousand feet high, sparked interest for other explorers. One of those explorers was James Mason Hutchings. But before we dig into Hutchings' life, we're going to pause for a moment and have a word from one of our sponsors, and then we will talk more about Hutchings and his wife and their establishment at Yosemite. So, to talk a bit about James and Elvira Hutchings... Hutchings was an Englishman who was a man of many trades, including carpentry, journalism, and mining. He was born on February 20th of 1820. He attended school in the Birmingham, England suburbs and eventually found work in carpentry. At the age of 28, he moved to the United States, spending time in 1848 in New York and New Orleans before moving on to California. 
If you know about California history and you did the math there, you may have correctly surmised that Hutchings was arriving in California at the very beginning of the gold rush. In 1849, there was a flood of thousands of and thousands of people into California, all hoping to strike it rich in gold. But there was absolutely no infrastructure to support this massive influx of people. There were no roads, there was no law, there was just wilderness. And as a consequence, there were some very large social issues. Riots would often break out in mining camps. There was a lot of violence that went unchecked. And the only repercussions for wrongdoing came in vigilante form. All of this conflict really dismayed Hutchings. He had some very English ideas about social order and how a society should function. And so with the money he was able to make from mining himself, he began publishing letter sheets for distribution in mining camps and towns. These were illustrated papers with accompanying text. It's usually a moral lesson of some point, which could be mailed off to friends and family. And the most famous of these letter sheets is the Miner's Ten Commandments. Like, if you do a search for that online, you will churn up a bunch of examples because it published over and over and over throughout the years. This is laid out similar to the Ten Commandments from the Bible, but it offers moral guidelines for miners about not jumping claims and not gambling money you don't have. Like, you, you're pretty sure your claim is going to pan out, but so you gamble away the money before you have it not working in the rain, and not valuing gold more than family. The illustrations on this and pretty much all of his letter sheets were filled with these beautiful images of California landscapes. Hutchings did well enough over the years as a miner that he was able to devote most of 1853 and 1854 to travel through mines throughout the state, collecting stories from the men he met there with the intention of publishing them. It was while he was on this tour that he heard of the beauty of Yosemite. And just as a a commentary on the potential for miners to actually make pretty good money, Hutchings wrote in his own diary on December 31st of 1854, quote, I have, to enable me to pay my board at the end of the week, hired out at mining for $3.50 per day. That's $3.50. Yet one month afterwards, I cleared over $1,000. Such is change in California. After hearing those tales of Yosemite's natural natural wonders, Hutchings hired two Miwok guides to take him and illustrator Thomas Ayers to the majestic waterfall that he had heard about. And once he returned from this exploration, he began writing about the beautiful landscape. He started publishing a periodical titled Hutchings California Magazine. You'll sometimes also see it as Hutchings Illustrated California Magazine. And over the course of the magazine's 60-issue five-year run, Hutchings came to be recognized as an expert on Yosemite, and the valley became famous in the process. The valley to Hutchings was inspiration to a higher and better way of living, and he was using his writing to advocate for it. The first volume of the magazine includes the following in the introductory paragraphs, quote, we wish to picture California and California life to portray its beautiful scenery and curiosities, to speak of its mineral and agricultural products, to tell of its wonderful resources and commercial advantages, and to give utterance to the inner life and experience of its people in their aspirations, hopes, disappointments and successes, the lights and shadows of daily life. And the first article in the publication uh, after that introduction begins immediately to tout the scenic beauty that California offers, uh, writing, quote, there are few lands that possess more of the beautiful and picturesque than California. It's towering and pine covered mountains. It's widespread valleys carpeted with flowers. It's leaping waterfalls. It's foaming cataracts. It's evergreen forests. 
Its gently rolling hills with shrubs and trees and flowers make this a garden of loveliness and a pride to her enterprising sons. To be very clear, this was not just a little pamphlet publication. This magazine was substantial. It's really something of a time capsule of attitudes and social mores of the time, as Hutchings wrote and collected stories about not just the lovely landscapes, but also, as promised in the intro, the daily life there. And one of the sections in, for example, the February 1857 issue, which is called The World in California, outlines some of the various people one might find living in the area at the time in sections titled, quote, the Indian, the pioneer, the miner, the Englishman, the Irishman, the Jew, the Negro, the hybrid and the Sandwich Islander. While some aspect of these categorized writings are evidence of common views at the time that would be pretty unenlightened by today's standards, it's interesting to note that Hutchings seems to have had the greatest disdain for the Englishman. He was characterized as gloomy despite the beautiful sunshine of California, enamored of his home country to a ridiculous degree, boastful, without conviction, and, quote, liberal to a fault. Just kind of funny since Hutchings was... From England. And his, even when you see write-ups of him, some people will say he was an American born in England. Um, I commented, wrote him up as English because he spent the first 28 years of his life in England. So his later identity definitely, definitely shifts. I think he would say he was a Yosemite man above all else. Uh, but it is sort of interesting at, uh, how many jabs he takes at Englishmen in that particular piece. Uh, of Native Americans, he wrote, quote, man of the desert, forest and prairie. Oh, how short is thy destiny? Wherever thou plantest thy foot, the sure onward march of the white man treads on thy heel, crowding thee out as a newspaper narrative of a bygone time. And after further describing how white men often shot down many of the Native Americans, he then says, alas, what has civilization done for thee? Pioneers got a lot of praise as nature's noblemen. It's kind of funny that immediately following the passage about the tragedy of white men shooting Native Americans, in the section on the pioneer, it reads, quote, he stands, trusty rifle in hand with his faithful dog beside him, a match for whole tribes of wild Indians, for whole herds of wild beasts. Yeah, it's a little contradictory. At least it felt that way to me. <laughs> uh, the miner is called, quote, the great throbbing heart of California. And he's described as a very godly and a great reader. The Irishman, according to the magazine, is, quote, a cute fellow and, quote, unencumbered with the botheration of learning. The Jew is described as friendly, though dishonest and wheedling. And the Negro is cast in a generally favorable light because of what a good genial servant he can be. As we said, Definitely unenlightened when viewed through the modern lens at the time. Probably yeah, somewhat progressive. It's not cool to apply this to a group of people, but I kind of just want to say unencumbered with the botheration of learning. Any, yeah. Anytime somebody is ignorant from now on. <laughs> it is a lovely turn of phrase, even though it was used as a horrible insult in this regard. The Hutchings magazine defines the hybrid as, quote, a bad left-handed cross of the Irish and the Yankee. This character of Hutchings, California, is a lazy freeloader. The Sandwich Islander is a frivolous man of luxury, fundamentally unable to handle true work. And next, uh, we're going to talk about another regular feature in the Hutchings periodical. But first, uh, let's pause once again for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. 
So to get back to the the publishing work of Hutchings, for an additional glimpse into the wide range of topics that his magazine covered, there's also a regular feature in it called Managing a Woman. And it deals with the relationships between men and women from the points of views of various contributors. And I feel like I should interject here that there is a lot of discussion uh, among people who study his work as to how many of those contributors are really him working under a pen name versus collected from other people. But one entry in it, which is credited to a writer named Bessie, is perhaps surprisingly about the ways in which marriages, and of course this is talking about hetero marriages here, uh, can change a woman for both bad and good. And it's told by relaying three examples of marriages known to the writer Bessie, you know, of women who married men who seemed nice but turned out bad, and also women who seemed very mean and then became quite lovely by virtue of of being with a man who was very kind and loving with them. Uh, and these are all examples that are known to the writer. And the message is summed up at the end of the essay as, quote, like begets like and love begets love. The world of California appeared in more than one issue of Hutchings California magazine, describing additional groups of people in a similar manner. It managing a woman and the other writings in the periodical offer a really unique look at what life was like at the time, as seen through the editorial lens of Hutchings. You can read these publications online, and we will link to them in the show notes. Yeah, they're archived online uh, in two big clumps that have collected like the first half of those publications in the second half. Uh, and early on, as Hutchings was creating this first media about Yosemite, both through his his uh, little letter papers and through these periodicals, he also became the person that wealthy elites started to turn to when they wanted to visit this wilderness area because they were becoming very fascinated by it. And Hutchings was happy to oblige them by guiding tours into the valley. He wanted the sublime beauty of Yosemite Valley to be acknowledged and presented to people living in quickly industrializing places like San Francisco. And while Hutchings is often characterized as fostering the tourism trade to make money from it, A fairly recent book on Hutchings' life by Jen Huntley suggests that Hutchings really wanted people to come to Yosemite, hoping they might collectively design an ideal way of life there that had room for the appreciation of nature and making a living. And this was a time when traveling to Yosemite was still an arduous and expensive journey. So again, there was not a road. You know, it really took quite a bit of effort. And it cost about 400 to $500 for a person from San Francisco to travel to Yosemite and spend a week there. That was no small amount in the 1850s. And the hope was that as these wealthy people from San Francisco shared their experiences after their visits to the valley with people back in the city, that it would spread and that people from other parts of the U.S. would eventually also be drawn there. There were efforts by other people, as well as Hutchings, to try to create an infrastructure to support the tourism of wealthy visitors to the valley. While one of the main drivers for this desire for visitors was the money-making desires of the people building this infrastructure, that wasn't the only reason. There was a growing movement of conservation in the United States, and the idea of setting aside land to remain undeveloped was starting to gain, gain traction in small, dedicated circles. In 1858, the first hotel was built in Yosemite. Prior to this point, there had been rudimentary structures that were billed as hotels, but they were often either just tents or little shacks that were meant to provide only the most basic shelter. But this first official hotel, the Upper Hotel, was an actual two-story building. 
There were no real walls to separate the rooms, though, just large sheets of cloth hung to create partitions. And it had window frames, but no glass in them. So this was not a luxury resort, but it was still a huge step up from any previous accommodations in the area in that it was a permanent structure with some actual size to it. And James Hutchings was one of the first people to stay at Upper House. And he saw immediately that there were some problems, uh, not about the structure being, you know, rudimentary, but how it was run. The finances were very poorly handled and there wasn't a proper manager for the hotel for the first couple of years. Meanwhile, in 1859, James Hutchings spent some time staying at a San Francisco boarding house. And while he was there, he made a, met a young woman named Elvira Sprout. Elvira was 17 and her mother ran the boarding house. The pair hit it off and they married the following year. In 1861, they moved away from San Francisco so James could take a job as a mine superintendent. And we're about to get to the point where uh, Hutchings and Elvira really kind of make Yosemite their home. And we're going to pause here for the moment. As we said, this is the first of a two-parter. So next time we're going to speak at length about the books Hutchings wrote and the true beginnings of like real tourism in Yosemite, not just these occasional visits from wealthy people that they were guiding in, and a long legal battle with the state of California. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. It's short and sweet uh, and adorable. It is from our listener, Lisa, and it is a beautiful postcard from Rome. And the picture, uh, it, it is a, a fragment of the statue of Constantine, so basically a giant foot. And it has a little kitten on it. <laughs> so obviously it completely hit all of my sweet spots in terms of loving a postcard. Uh, and Lisa writes, hi, gals. I just wanted to share my joy at finally making it to the Eternal City. Enjoying the history, the art, the food, and the wine. Too many podcast suggestions to even list. I hope you like the kitten. And I I love it because this is one of those rare occasions where someone has sent us a postcard from overseas and none of the writing was obscured by postal markings. So uh, that's always exciting to me. Hooray! I can see everything on it. Woohoo! It's a win. And it's so adorable. I will take a picture of it and share it on our social. Uh, thank you so much, Lisa. As I always say, but I it bears repeating in my opinion, I am always so honored and delighted when people take time out of their vacations to write to us. Uh, it's really quite touching and it means a lot. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History, on Twitter at History. We're at Pinterest.com slash History. We're on Instagram at History. Basically, uh, if you want to go onto any social media, History is how to find us. If you would like to learn about... Uh, a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, type in National Park Service, and you'll get a plethora of articles about various issues related to the Park Service, uh, the parks themselves. We have a, a wealth of information about them. So do that, and then come and visit Tracy and me at mistinhistory.com, where we have an archive of every show ever of the podcast from way before we were here, and show notes on the ones Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as the occasional blog post or other treat. So we encourage you to do that. Come and visit us at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 